Thanks, uh, Esther, so much for leading us so um, brilliantly. Well, throughout our teaching series, uh, The Father Heart of God, um, we've been reminded of lots of things. But if we've been reminded of just one thing, if there was one message that we need to grab hold of from what's been a nine-week series, it's gone by incredibly quickly, it's this, is that our Father, our Father God, is a God who loves to give good gifts to his children. I really hope you've discovered that in this series. Of course, Jesus knew that to be true. Uh, Do you remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount towards the end? Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, says Jesus? How much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? We have a Father who's never going to give a stone if we ask him for bread. We have a father who's not going to give us a snake if we ask him for a fish. Well, this morning we get to discover the answer to Jesus' somewhat rhetorical how much more question that he asked in the Sermon on the Mount. How much more will he give? Well, we discover the answer today is he gives eternal life. What more could a God give to his children? Now, I don't know what's on your um, Christmas list this year. Maybe you've got some socks or some smellies or a bottle of something nice. But I guarantee you that whatever is on your Christmas list, that our Father God trumps whatever gifts you're asking for with the gifts that he's able to give. This morning, we've already sung about it. We discover he loves to give to his children the gift of no more tears. He loves to give the gift of no more pain, of no more death. He loves to give the gift of eternal life. Well, the obvious place to turn for this morning is Revelation chapter 21. We're going to be looking at two texts actually today, also digging in a little bit into Romans chapter 8. So if you've got a Bible, Romans chapter 21, uh, we're going to read verses 1 through to 7. They say this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Here come those words. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said this, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and they are true. He said to me, it's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of living water. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Well, earlier on this week, I had the the privilege of conducting a funeral service for a lady who was a member in my previous church. Uh, Her name was Venice. Uh, She was delightful. Venice was one of those characters who was always wonderfully encouraging. It's the person that every church leader loves to have around them because we need to have our egos fueled. But she was that one face She was that one person who, when you were preaching, you would look for her face if you weren't sure how your message was going down, because you could guarantee that no matter what you were saying, Venice would be sitting there grinning from ear to ear, nodding her head, just lapping up absolutely everything that you were saying at the front. 
She was an incredibly enthusiastic lady. But life in the last few years of Venice's life had become quite tough. For about the last 10 years, dementia had robbed her of the ability to know even her friends and her family, even to recall quite distant memories, let alone more recent memories. And I guess as I recalled Venice's story, I was reminded that life can be tough. Life isn't always a bed of roses. And the Apostle Paul knew that to be true as well. In Romans chapter 8, Paul speaks about the whole of creation groaning. What a great image to use around creation. The whole of creation groaning with all that it has to contend with. But he doesn't stop there at the point of groaning. He goes on to say, yes, life can be tough. Yes, creation is groaning. But there is a solution to the problem. And the solution is all about being an adopted child of the Heavenly Father. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 8. He says, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal in this later. For we know that all of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. We wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as adopted children, including the new bodies he's promised to us. We were given this hope when we were saved, says Paul. We were given this hope when we were saved. So if we're Christians, if we've been adopted into the family God, then there has been a past tense blessing which one day will, in all of its fullness, be a future reality. That's what Paul is saying. Hope of eternal life isn't just a gift that we're kind of longing for in a wishy-washy kind of a way. One day we hope that it will come. But Paul had realized that actually the gift of eternal life is a gift that we have already been given on the day that we came to faith in Jesus Christ. As you flick through the pages of the Bible, especially Paul's words in the New Testament, you discover actually that the Bible is very honest, isn't it, about how temporary this life actually is. It's often said that there are two things you can be certain of in life. Nothing is as certain uh, but death and taxes. Nothing is, nothing is certain but death and taxes. There is an inevitability, isn't there, about these things. Now, I guess you can avoid paying taxes if you're really clever or, or just plain devious, actually. You can avoid the tax man, but the reality is the odds for you and I avoiding death really are not good. Now, of course, death and dying is something of a taboo, which is surprising when the odds are as they are in our society. But really wise people don't avoid this subject. Really wise people think about this subject. And in fact, as Christians, as those of us who have come to faith in Christ, we can tackle this theme this morning head on, knowing that there's absolutely nothing to fear in talking about it. I do wonder, though, apart from at a funeral of a friend or of a family member, when was the last time that you actually stopped for any length of time to consider heaven? I wonder when you last did that. When was it you last stopped for any period of time to realize that actually the earthly body that you inhabit is just a temporary thing and it's not permanent? Now, of course, I think this is a bit of a balancing act, but I expect it's something that lots of us, and I know this is true of myself, get wrong. I don't think about heaven enough. Now, you've probably heard people say, don't be so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly use. But I wonder if it's possible to be true that we can be so earthly-minded that we're of no heavenly use. It's got to surely be a good thing, especially for Christians, to think about heaven. 
After all, you and I are going to spend an awful lot more time in heaven than we get to spend here on earth. I've heard that eternity is quite a long time. No one got it. See if you get part two of the joke. Eternity is quite a long time, especially towards the end. Don't worry, I'll drop that in the second service. You see, for Christians, focusing on heaven on a regular basis really isn't just good advice. It's biblical advice. The Apostle Paul, again, says to the church in Colossae to do exactly that. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above, he says. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now, there's about 50 sermons in those verses, but I'm going to avoid it. But Paul's simple point is this, is if this resurrection message of Easter is true, and if our resurrection, because of Christ, is so sure to happen that it's virtually already happened, then we ought to be living in this constant consciousness that we're citizens of another age. We're not just citizens of here on planet Earth. So as we conclude our teaching series this morning on the Father heart of God, we are going to focus on the reality of what's coming to us. Why? Because it's a promise for those of us who have come to faith in Christ. It's a promise for those of us who are children of the living God. Why are we going to focus on this? Because the person who knows their future... In fact, the person who knows their eternity is glorious and it's certain will be free to live the most radical life of love and sacrifice as a child of God here on earth. The person who knows that their sonship or their daughtership is more than just a fuzzy feeling to get us through life and instead knows that they've already been gifted past tense with this gift of eternal life from their heavenly father is going to live life differently in the light of that knowledge here on earth. Now, maybe some of us think in pictures, well, here's a a well-trodden preacher's illustration that will help you understand what I mean by what I've just said. Imagine for a moment that you're on a a skydiving trip. Can you picture that? (laughs) No, say some of you. Well, imagine for a moment that somebody falls out of the airplane that you're on on your skydiving trip without a parachute, but you don't have one on either at this point in time. What are you going to do? Well, the answer is you will do absolutely nothing. In fact, the truth is you'll probably seatbelt yourself into your seat and start praying quite heavily for yourself and for the person who's falling. You see, what you're not going to do is jump out after them. Why? Because it won't do any good whatsoever. Two deaths are not better than one death. But imagine a different scenario. Imagine that you happen to be the one person in the plane with your parachute um, on in this moment. You might just try one of those awesome heroic rescue attempts where you free fall like a bullet after the other person. You grab hold of them, you pull your parachute cord, and then you both float safely uh, into, into a landing. It's a silly illustration, but can you see it's the hope of safety in the end that releases radical sacrificial love in the here and the now. Just before those words I read from Colossians, actually at the very beginning of Colossians, Paul is commending the church for their heaven-centered hope. He says, we've heard of the love that you have for all the saints, for all the saints because of the hope, because of the hope that's laid up for you in heaven. Here were some people, Paul spotted, living life differently here on earth because they knew of the hope that was theirs in heaven. 
They were so heavenly-minded, actually, Paul says of them, they were of even more earthly use than they otherwise would have been. The antidote to fear is knowing that we belong somewhere safe. The greatest gift, which has already been given to us, has been given to us by Jesus, and it's our eternal hope. This hope is a hope that gives us hope. It gives us peace, even in our darkest moments. Again, Romans chapter 8, Paul says, For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they don't already have? But we hope for what we do not yet have, and we, uh, for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So I made a complete mess of that. But hope, 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 hope. Paul can't say it enough. Five times in these two sentences, he speaks about hope. Adoption into God's family can take fear and it can turn it into hope. Hope for tomorrow transforms the way that we live today. And then coming back to Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, God says, Behold, I make all things new. All things new. And then he enforces the certainty of that event in two ways. Firstly, you'll notice, where is he sitting when he says that? He's sitting on his throne, the heavenly type of throne, when he says it. He's sitting on the throne of the universe, the place of power, the place of rule, the place of control, the place of authority. And then secondly, after he said it, he says, write this down. Why? Because these words are trustworthy and they are true. Behold, I am making all things new. I've said it from the throne and these words, by the way, are trustworthy and they are true. You get the sense here, don't you, that God is really wanting to, uh, for us to be absolutely sure of this truth. He's longing for us to have full assurance that no matter how much evil and how much suffering and how much senselessness and how much pain we experience in this life, he will in the fullness of time make all things new. And that includes you, it includes me, it includes the whole of creation if we've been adopted as his children. Have you ever wondered what heaven's going to be like? I do. I sometimes ponder it. I suspect I probably get it wrong. But our scriptures this morning give us at least three ways or three descriptors of what heaven is going to be like, if not physically, metaphorically. And if not metaphorically, it's going to give us three ways or three identifiers of how we can know heaven is going to be a good place to be. And the first thing that our text says is that sin will be going. Sin is going. Heaven is going to be a place that is made new, both spiritually and morally. I don't know about you, but the greatest frustration in my life is that I sin even when I don't desire to sin. Even when I think to myself, today is going to be a good day, so often today ends up being a bad day. And it's the greatest irritation, isn't it, of the human condition. We want to be holy, and yet somehow we fall short of the holiness that we ourselves long for. We want to love, and yet still we find ourselves saying hurtful things to friends, to family, to neighbors. We want to worship, and yet we turn up sometimes to worship, to praise God, and we feel cold. We want to walk in peace, and yet still we wrestle with a sense of anxiety. You see, when God makes all things new, he's promised in verse 5 that all sin will be gone. Wow, I wonder what that looks like. I almost struggle to imagine it. 
Look at verse 2. He says, And I saw uh, the new holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Here's a picture of the church prepared and beautified for her husband, Jesus Christ. When God makes all things new, he makes the church, the people of God, free of sin and he he makes them beautiful, ready for his son. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing shameful. This is God's picture. It's God's plan for you and for me if we've been adopted into the family of God. But the second thing that's said in Revelation 21 is that all suffering is going to be going. Suffering is going. God is going to make us physically and bodily new. Now, I don't know what you think you will be like in heaven, but the Bible does not teach that you and I will be disembodied spirits who kind of float around in an ethereal nothingness. The Bible teaches he's going to make all things new, and that includes our body. Now, verse 4 points in that direction. He says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I can't tell you how reassuring it is to be able to stand at a a funeral, as I did on Thursday, and be able to proclaim those words with absolute confidence. There's going to be no more pain. There's going to be no more hurt, no more suffering, no more crying. Why? Because the former things have passed away. God is going to do something new. What that means is that the body that we now know and we currently inhabit will be forever and gloriously changed. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 to 21, Paul puts it like this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under control, will transform. He will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like what? so they will be like his glorious body. That's what's coming your way as a consequence of becoming a child of our Heavenly Father. That's what's coming your way because Jesus died and he, rose again, he conquered the grave, he rose again and he's reigning. You will one day get a glorious body like his glorious body. Now for some of us, there's a sense of hallelujah, amen, I'm kind of done with this earthly body. And I totally get that. You have a hope, which is in Jesus, that you'll have a glorious new body. And in fact, God is going to make the whole of his creation new and glorious. In those words we heard from Romans 8, verse 21, creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Sin is going. Suffering is going. And separation is gone. Going going, gone. If we're children of God, then a day is coming when we are going to experience our God face to face in a way that we have never experienced him ever before. Do you ever find yourself just in worship, just having just a glimpse, even just a tiny glimpse of what heaven will be like, will magnify that a billion times and you'll be getting not even close to what your experience of worshiping God is going to be like once that separation is gone and out the way. John tells us about that in verse 3. He says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself will be with them. Wow. Verse 4, they shall see his face. They shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. 
Who is it that receives all of this? Well, that's the awesome promise. It's the awesome promise that it's he or she who overcomes, who will inherit all of this. I will be his, I will be her God, and he or she will be my son or daughter. It's being adopted into the family of God that guarantees you this eternal hope. As I wrap up this series, I simply want to ask this question of you. How is your relationship this morning with your Father God? How is it? He's given an amazing promise. He's given an incredible eternal hope. I want to encourage you this morning to do exactly what we challenge in the very first week of this series, which is to run into the loving embrace of our Heavenly Father. Please don't be content with a handshake. Don't be content with a fist pump. Run into his loving embrace today because your hope is eternal and your hope is glorious. Sin is going. Suffering is going. Separation is gone. Going, going, gone. The covenant sealed. Let's pray together. Lord, in nine weeks, we've covered so much ground. In these nine weeks, we've taken something of a journey where week by week, we have reminded ourselves of that amazing truth that you are the God who gives good gifts. And Lord, I thank you so much this morning. Just even as I look out this morning, I can just be so sure that so many of us have come to that place where we've accepted this gift the gift of eternal life, the gift that was given to us in Jesus Christ. And yet, Lord, I know for myself, I so need to understand and appreciate even more what it means to have already received that gift. Lord, this morning for each one of us, Lord, just in these few moments before we race into the rest of our day before we charge headlong probably into preparations for Christmas and we change our focus next week. We just dwell for a moment again just on that image of being a son or a daughter held in the embrace of our Heavenly Father. Lord, I pray, don't make us Allow us to be resistant, I pray, to that embrace. Lord, where we stand at a distance, Lord, would we take some steps towards you as you step towards us? Lord, thank you that your invitation is to linger in that embrace and not race away. Lord, thank you too that when that prodigal son came home, you gave him a robe, you gave him a ring. Lord, thank you that one day we will receive heavenly clothes that we don't deserve, royal robes. 
Thank you, Lord, that one day we will see you face to face. Thank you, Lord, that one day sin will be dealt with completely and fully. Thank you, Lord, that that distance, that separation we feel from you in these earthly bodies will once one day be gone. And thank you, Lord, that all suffering, all pain, all hurt, all tears, all crying, all mourning will be a distant memory. What a hope we have in Jesus. And thank you, Lord, that it's a hope eternal. Lord, would you take the truth of your word today and, Lord, embed it in our hearts so that we might live differently today in the knowledge of the hope that's ours tomorrow, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.